I spent the first seven days in county lockup um, in complete isolation, you know, no clothes, no toothpaste, no nothing in a, a room with a metal slab. You couldn't have a mattress, lights on 24 hours a day because I was just, I just had a complete emotional breakdown, right? And was just completely a mess. They were afraid that I would harm myself. Um, so when I finally came out of there and back and I realized, you know, I'm not getting out of here. It, it forced me to really sit down and recognize how much damage I was doing to myself. Nobody else was doing this to me. This was nobody else's doing. I not only took actions I knew clearly were wrong, but I turned my back when people offered to help. I refused to let anybody, you know, guide me and say that, hey, you know what, it's okay that 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 you can't do this on your own. It doesn't impact anyone's view of you but you. You are the only one holding yourself back. Hello, my friends. I'm your host, Victor Rampadrat. Welcome to the show where we share the lived experiences of ordinary people just like you. We're amplifying your voice to provide a different perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our goal is simple, humanize DEI so we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect. Today we have a man who drinks 12 to 20 cups of coffee a day. When I learned of this, I knew it had to be right in the intro. Sorry, Matthew. He's also a convicted felon and is here to break the stigma for those who've walked a similar path. Matthew Higgins is someone who is the epitome of human resilience. Not allowing his struggles to define him, he persevered to notable accomplishments in the human resources industry. His passion and zeal for life is to be admired. A champion for the underdog. He doesn't forget his humble beginnings and brings that into his work every single day. I can't wait for the world to hear his truth. Welcome to the show, my man. How's it going today? Uh, I, I am so excited to be here. You know, I'm a big fan of yours, a big fan of your story as well. So this is super exciting for me to be able to participate in this. I'm very excited. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming. And as we normally do here, we like to dive right in because we want to be conscious of your time as well as our guest. So let's let's talk about growing up. I mean, you grew up in Chicago. How would you describe growing up in Chicago, that area, and sort of what it was like, you know, with your challenges getting into the life and education and some of those pieces? Yeah, so it's really great. So there's some awesome things about growing up in Chicagoland. So the one really positive thing is I grew up in a very, very diverse neighborhood, um, which is fantastic because, you know, I got to meet all sorts of great people growing up. Um, one of the cool things is actually in my grade school, in first grade, we were required to take conversational Spanish. Um, it, it was just a requirement because we had such a heavy population of individuals who spoke solely Spanish or predominantly Spanish. So we all got the bonus of being able to learn at an early age, which is you know, really fantastic, um, especially growing up in an area around there. Um, a lot of the things, right? So this is a different time, you know, growing up in the, this is, we're looking at the early mid eighties, um, crime was still a, a little bit on the heavier side where I grew up, right? There was a lot of gang activity involved. Um, you know, we learned in an early age, there was the requirements in school, you know, you can't wear certain colors together. You can't you know, have certain things on you. So we learned some of those things really early on and you just learn how to adapt from there. Um, the Midwest in general. So if, if you've never been to the Midwest, um, it, it, it's a whole different world. Um, and I kind of isolate the city of Chicago for a reason. I'll get to that in a moment. But so the Midwest, it's very much, it's a very, you hear please and thank you from everybody. You you know your neighbors. You you know grew up with respect. I mean, it, it was a point where if you were acting up, you know, the neighbor down the street was gonna you know call you out and bust your butt on it, and, and they were gonna go to your parents about it too, right? So it's just very much that that way. And the city of Chicago, even though it's a big city, it was still a lot of the same, right? You knew all your neighbors. You knew that you were in good hands. Um, 
So moving forward in there, I was at a very young age. Um, my biological father uh, took his own life, which at the time, I, I so I knew he passed away, but I didn't know what the actual cause of that was, what actually prompted him to do so. Um, so it was a little difficult, you know, not having a male role model initially. Um, and, it, it, you know, having a, a single mom trying to raise all of us kids, it makes a bit of a difference as well, too. So I learned at a young age, I got to be able to help out. So I mean, I started tutoring kids in the fourth grade, um, wow. you know, help, helping a lot of the population, right, who, who English was not their first language. So I helped them learn to read, write, spell, and I taught things of that and said, you know, here you go, Ma, we need some groceries. Let's use this to make sure that we're staying afloat. So you learned at a young age really to kind of, you know, provide provide something, right? You learned that nothing comes to you for free, and that was my way of earning my keep. So in grade four, you were tutoring and then handing the money to your mom to say, let's make sure the family's good. So you were almost a male role model in many respects to the household in doing your part to contribute. (laughs) Well, I, I I didn't know any other way, right? That was all I knew. I mean, that was how it had to be. So, so so fast fast forward a little bit. So, so you're doing that. You, you seem to me, it's funny because it sounded a little bit like you were talking about Canada where I grew up because it was very similar in the neighborhood where you had that diversity. Someone would come out and, beat your butt and tell your parents that they did this because of this reason. Um, but, you know, fast forward a little bit. It's, it, you know, you got um, from sort of being that, I would say, model citizen. You're helping, you're, um, you know, tutoring, you're helping the family. And then something happens. What happens? Yeah. So as I start to, you know, get a little bit older, right, my, my mom wound up remarrying um when i was in eighth grade um the guy who she chose to marry was not the ideal <laughs> um person, right so he he had a lot of drug abuse issues um alcohol abuse issues very violent um so i made the decision that i was going to get out of there as quick as i could um, i got a job at a restaurant working for fantastic people i, I cannot stress enough how amazing I was very blessed. The first job I took with this restaurant was a little family-owned diner. They they took me under their wing. They kind of knew my situation. Um, I was working full time all through high school. I mean, you know, six days a week, every night after school, all day Saturdays and Sundays. They they knew that I needed to get in my situation. So, um, but however, I, the reality is, right, a kid at fifteen, sixteen, to have that kind of cash flow coming in opens up a different set of problems, right? So on the one hand, yeah, it's really exciting. You learn to be responsible. You learn how to be self-sufficient. Um, you know, I was I was paying for my own place at 17. I bought a car at 16. I, I learned how to do that so because I had no other option. However, a kid at that age isn't really equipped to deal with what comes with having this kind of cash inflow. And unfortunately I was not ready to take on the full amount of responsibility of it. So I got very heavily involved in um, a a lot of things that I'm not super proud of, right? Um, Without getting into too much graphic detail. uh, I I started doing some things that were really stupid. Um, The other issue that I had is, you know, I probably even before high school, but really in high school is when I began to understand it. I knew that I was probably gay, which, you know, we're talking, this is the mid nineties where it's still not something that people talk openly about. Um, you know, high school was a pretty miserable time for me. Uh, I, I, I had no intention on finishing at all. That was, it was just not in the crowd for me. And it wasn't, it was only because of my boss at my job who said, your name will not be on the schedule if you don't get your ass a diploma, right? So, really? So he sort of like triggered you to say, listen, you got to make sure you finish here or else you don't have a job here. 
absolutely. Yeah. They, they were, that family was, they were my saving grace and they said, no, we know that you've got potential. You are not going to drop out. You're, you will stop giving you hours if that's the case. Cause my intent was I'm going to work even more. I'm going to be able to open my mind. And they said, no. So that, so there was, I don't want to sound like all, you know, all these odds stacked against me. I had this phenomenal support system in my employer. Um, but anyhow, so moving back into this piece, right, having that struggle of knowing that I, I've got to harbor this other secret because I mean, I, I'd been just bullied and relentlessly for you know being called names, which I obviously can't say I'm on the air here. But you can imagine some of the, the things that I was called by the kids because they knew and I just wasn't coming to terms with it. Um once I did at the age of 18, unfortunately, I went down a path that a, a lot of young men, a lot of, you know, young homosexual men go down, which is a lot of promiscuity, a lot of partying, um, deciding to, you know, get a place in the city and really get into a lot of unfortunate things. Um, you know, I, I was not sleeping, not eating, nothing mattered to me other than partying and sex, right? That was, that was what took over my life. Um, got me into some, some trouble at an early age. Uh, you know, the good news is at that time I was able to bounce back, you know, luckily I still had this job that was paying my bills. Um, at that point in time, it was just, you know, minor little things. Um, but I knew I probably had to do something to stabilize myself, um, get a little more in line with where I'm at. Because once I came to terms with this is my identity, I, unfortunately, at that point in time in the world, there really wasn't a whole lot of resources available to you. And you kind of connected to people based on sex i mean that was the one thing you knew you had in common with others at that point in time so that was kind of what drew you into that world um wow it, it really it really skewed my priorities tremendously so so you, you you've come out of this sort of time in your life where you are um for lack of a better term lost with direction right you you've got this in this cash coming in, you're, you're, you're not feeling welcomed at school, you're um, independent, you've got this wonderful support system in this family diner, and, you know, life is kind of ebb and flow, right? Like, there's some good things, there's some not so good things, and then what happens next? Like, what is the next big break for you? So, that came... Um the start, my the first of many <laughs> downfalls, um, happened at age 19. Uh, I made the decision that, you know, I, I was tired of being told what I needed to do. Um, I left that job um, knowing that that was probably the one solid piece that I had in my life. Uh, I made the decision to leave there because I thought I wanted to do more. Um, unfortunately, that led to giving me more free time to just get into the party scene. Um, spent a lot of time. The easy way to make money is there were, I don't know how I'll say it right. I mean, I would, I would provide services to men to, it, it was easy money. The offers were there. At, you know, 19 years old, 20 years old, I mean, the easy life was something that appealed to me because I hadn't seen it to this point. I mean, I had, I had basically been, you know, busting my butt for so long. I'm like, I, I want the chance. I mean, if, if this opportunity is in front of me to get on easy street for a while, great. Um, I started having then the downside of that came where I had to be very cognizant of my appearance. Um, I developed an eating disorder pretty severely. Um, uh, you know, 
the appeal was that I look was young and thin and, and had that appeal. Um, so I, I, I really started taking really terrible care of myself. Um, it started becoming addicted to diet medicine, um, drinking a lot more than I cared to, um, really just to hold up that facade of what I thought was finally going to make me wanted by a community. The reality was I, everybody wanted me for the night. Nobody wanted me for anything beyond that. Um, that reality really kind of just took its toll on me, um, sink into a pretty dark depression uh, to the point where, you know, I made a pretty serious attempt on my life, um, wound up having to go into a hospital for treatment. I was in there for three and a half months to try to get stabilized, uh, to try to get back on my feet. Unfortunately, when you are dealing with that many components, stability is your best friend. And I had that stability for those three and a half months. And I walked out and thought, this is great. You know, I've got a new fresh outlook on life, but you walk out those doors, there's no stability waiting for you. There, there's nothing in place to keep that going. And so I fell back to what I knew, which was, you know, turning back to the streets. <sighs> you know, it, it's, it, it's a pretty disheartening thing when I knew I had people who would have supported me, who would have helped me, but I was too embarrassed to turn to them. I was too embarrassed to say, I don't know how to do this on my own because I'd been doing it on my own. And so through, not through anyone else's fault at all, but they kind of just said, we know Matthew's got this, he'll bounce back. He's good. You know, we don't have to worry about anything. So I just kept that running where, yeah, I got this. <laughs> yeah, I definitely I mean, not. I, I mean, and, and it, you know, when you're telling me this, I, I'm feeling the emotion because I didn't know any of this. I only knew the smiling individual that I spoke to the first time. And in my heart, I'm like, I did not even know that someone who could smile so brightly have such a, a happiness and a zeal. And, you know, you talk about being a champion for the underdog, but not realizing what that entails why that is how did it make you feel when you realized you know you thought you had it all together but you realized you didn't so it's interesting that you said you know you kind of feel that a little bit because it was i had the exact opposite problem i didn't feel anything i had learned to just shut everything off i could almost i, I don't know how much you, you know you know about this and i i've never personally but there are people who talk about how they can almost remove themselves from their body and kind of watch what's going on. So I felt, I felt like this is enough. I even named my alter ego as Jason. Jason was the one who was out doing these things. Jason was the one who was out performing these acts, doing all these things. So it was me just watching him fall apart. I was still stable. I was still good. There was nothing going on. I could completely separate that piece of me with the piece that, you know, was presenting himself in front of other people every single day. And I was able to keep those two things at bay. Um, I I'll tell you what scared me more than anything was how good, or not how good, how easy it was for me to lie to people. How easy it was for me to tell people that everything is good. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what's going on. And, and nobody questioned it. Nobody questioned it because I could put on this, you know, charming smile and let people know, yeah, everything, and just be so happy-go-lucky and just compartmentalize that other piece of me. Nobody ever saw it. Unbelievable. I mean, for me, because I can't fathom, this is shock. It's it's really, this, this is shocking to me because I did not know any of this. I mean, and 
you are our first homosexual guest on the show. And I, I want to thank you for being so open and honest and, and just very vulnerable in this conversation. What was the experience like coming out? Because I've heard the community, the LGBTQ plus community, um, has a really difficult time when having to share this with loved ones, with people at work. There's that psychological safety piece. What was that experience for you? So, <laughs> um, so it, it was really twofold, right? So, and again, I have to reiterate, this was a you know, 25 years ago. So, it, it, there there was a lot more hesitancy because I didn't know anyone else who was gay at that point. You know trying to come up, I didn't know. Me. And the few people who I had met were basically to hook up with because I wanted to explore that without anybody else knowing. Um, so going back to to the, the family restaurant that I worked for, <laughs> this just goes back another reason why they were so great. And this was well after the fact. Um, you know, me coming out, there was difficult, you know, and... Finally, my boss, who she she was one of the one of the seven owned there were seven kids who owned the restaurant, and she kind of oversaw the the servers, and so I mentioned something to her, in, in, you know, very casually. She said, you know, Matthew, I I don't know what you're thinking because the reality is, I knew you were gay the whole time. Why do you think I made you a waiter here? She's like, and she kind of joked, she said, I've never met a gay guy who's not a good waiter. And it just really kind of reiterated the fact that, you know, that's that's exactly it. I mean, I've got wonderful people who had my back. So I was beating myself up more with that piece. But again, the whole not, not going to people who really had my back all along. Um, with, in terms of, you know, because high school people had bullied me so badly about it before I ever said anything, before I even really came to terms with it. I probably beat myself up more than anybody else. Um, I, I was very blessed. My ma and her family are, are pretty liberal in their views. Um, and, and same thing, you know, my mom and I lived a thousand miles away from each other. Um, after I moved out, she moved to Colorado with her then husband at the time. Um, and so I was talking around the phone one day and I said, or you said, I said, Ma, you know, I, I, I went on a date with someone, you know, I, I think we kind of hit it off. And she said to me, and I'll never forget, she said, what's his name? And I just knew. And I just said, ah, and she said, Matthew, I've known, I've always known. She said, you know, we've all known all your aunts, uncles, your sisters, you know, your grandparent, right? Everybody's known, but I just, I couldn't wrap my head around that. My, my mom's family, again, and still to this day, they're all super supportive of it. You know, they've met my husband. They absolutely love him, but I was so hard on myself that I, I couldn't fathom this because again, I didn't have any, um, I, I didn't have any reference. I didn't have any reference. You know, I didn't know anybody else who'd been in this situation. And the few stories you'd heard on the news were all horror stories. Um, I mean, this was something that, I, you know, one of the big national news is here in the States we hit was the case of Matthew Shepard out in Wyoming. And this was in, you know, the mid to late nineties, uh, someone who was, brutally and publicly attacked and, and killed for, you know, coming out and it, it made national news. And I just thought, I've seen how people treat me to this point. I never want to say anything about that. A lot of people don't have the luxury that I had where I had people in my corner and I know that's not the case most of the time. All I can say to somebody is, is get right with yourself. Once you accept that within yourself, you'll have a clearer picture on 
who you can discuss with, who you don't want to discuss with, if you choose to discuss it at all. Because ultimately, once you're honest with yourself, you'll be honest with yourself about how you want to tackle that with anybody else. And, you know, my motto typically has been, unless you're interested in dating me, what does it matter to you who I'm dating? You know, that's usually my view on this. Listen, I mean, thank you. I'm going to thank you. I can't thank you enough because I am learning for me so much today about what it's like to live that. So, Matthew, I, I don't mean to switch gears here because we were just digging into some very deep and I learned a lot from that part of the conversation because I do not know what it's like to have to go through that. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do is provide other people's lived experiences to build that broader lens on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So thank you for being so vulnerable. But here's another thing. No formal education. Ex-convict. That's like, you know, two strikes when you're going out into the workaday world, right? Because people are typically asking for college or university education. They're asking that you have no criminal record or you need to do a criminal background check which typically puts people in that low menial wage type job, but that's not you. How did yeah. you do that? Yeah. So, so if I can add a further complication even to that, right. So, so I had, you know, working in the restaurant industry, you know, flash forward to my twenties, I had moved up into um, managerial roles in restaurants, um, taking on some of the training functions, uh, some of the, payroll function that so I had some HR exposure at, at a very low level of it um, and I actually wound up working for Target Corporation which is a major corporation uh, working at the store level doing HR functions for the store so um, so it was really good exposure for me and I, I got to work with people which I love you know it was the thing I loved to learn from my tables um, but I was with Target for five years and it goes back to what I hit on earlier, you know, having access to all of this money and, and you build a lifestyle for yourself, right? So I wound up stealing a lot of money from Target Corporation. Um, over time, I mean, this wasn't a, a one-time deal, right? Um, when I would go to turn in our store bank deposits, I would take a portion of it with me, you know, and, and in, our, in our vaults in the store, I would, we had a little CD player in there if I'm dating myself and I would uh, take, you know, my CD case in there. And I would, when I would take the CD out of the CD player, I would put it on top of a stack of, you know, a couple hundreds, put the CD back in the case and take it out with me. Did that for several months. Um, it, it amounted to, a lot um, and finally I, I just I couldn't take it anymore I knew that I was not well right I knew mentally I was not well I knew that I was doing something that I, I couldn't sustain long term and so I finally broke down to our head of security at the store and uh, I was arrested I was charged with a class two felony, um, theft with intent. It, it, it was at, at that point, you know, we talk about numb at that point, everything that I had shut off for the past 10 years just came flooding out. And I realized my life is spun so far out of control. And at that point I had isolated myself and kept people at this distance, right? Lied to them essentially for so long that I thought, I'm like, I don't even know who I can call for help at this point. I, I, have, I have distanced myself and, and kept myself so isolated so that people wouldn't know the struggles that I was having with, you know, obviously not only, not only the stealing, right? But the eating disorder with the prostitution, with all of this stuff. 
and now I'm at a point where I, I truly need help and I don't know where to go at this point. Um, I, I talked to my ex and he, he was the one person who I thought to call. I don't know why, um, but I did. And he did the best thing in the world for me. He refused to bail me out. And the reason I say at the time I was obviously just beyond upset and infuriated and, you know, I spent the first seven days in county lockup um, in complete isolation, you know, no clothes, no toothpaste, no nothing in a room with a metal slab. I couldn't have a mattress lights on 24 hours a day because I was just, I just had a complete emotional breakdown, right? And was just completely a mess. They were afraid that I would harm myself. Um, so when I finally came out of there and back and I realized, you know, I'm not getting out of here, it, it forced me to really sit down and recognize how much damage I was doing myself. Nobody else was doing this to me. This was nobody else's doing. I not only took actions I knew clearly were wrong, but I turned my back when people offered to help me. I refused to let anybody, you know, guide me and say that, hey, you know what, it's okay that 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 you can't do this on your own. It doesn't impact anyone's view of you but you. You are the only one holding yourself back. Um, so I I had to, you know, pay my dues. I wound up going through a 15 month process, um, with the Illinois department of corrections. In that time, I had the best wake up call. You know, you hear people tell horror stories of, you know, being arrested and being, it was my saving grace. It really was. First of all, I'm, it's going to sound weird, but I met some amazing people there because I learned that there are other people who've got a story that, even though it doesn't identically match mine, it parallels it on so many levels how we, 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 we self-sabotaged ourselves, you know, and, and really, truly, we learned we could kind of lean on each other a little bit for support. Talk about somebody who gets it. I mean, this, these are people who are going to understand better than anybody else what it's like. And I forged some amazing bonds. Um, and really, I forged an amazing bond with myself that I never had. I spent my 30th birthday locked up. And, you know, it, it, it just gave me that time to say, get your together, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it, it was basically that. And I, I'm very blessed again, too, that when I was released, I wound up, you know, I, I first of all, I had a, I, I'm so blessed. I had a phenomenal, you know, parole officer. She was absolutely instrumental in me staying on the path that I knew I wanted to go on. Um, I wound up going back to the family owned diner at 30 years old and waiting tables, you know, it, it, you know, tail between my legs, whatever they want to call. It. But it gave me three things, right? It gave me stability. First of all, it gave me a sense of belonging. This was, you know, with people who I knew, knew me at my core and saw beyond what I saw. And it kind of reignited my fire to say, what am I doing with my life? You know, I've been wasting so much time doing stuff that wasn't adding any value to my own well-being. Um, you know, so I, I worked hard. I wound up paying back every single dime I took. Um, I, I paid back the entire restitution through, you know, I, at times I actually worked three jobs at one point. Um, don't know when I slept, hence the 12 to 20 cups of coffee. <laughs> right? I mean, but, you know, the, the reality is, is that I said, this is my chance to, to finally start being an advocate for myself and start building a better life for me. 
And that's exactly what I did. You know, it's really difficult to, to, to say that I've been my own worst enemy. It's, it's a bitter pill to swallow, but the reality is I was, and not, and that's not the case for everyone. I, I want to make that abundantly clear is there are so many people who do advocate for themselves and, and they don't. I, I mentioned it a couple times. I was very blessed to have a couple of key pieces in my life that, that helped me tremendously. Um, but for my own story, right, I, I was I was hurting myself more than anybody else. Um, well, and this is your truth. Right. And that's why this this is the show that you're on, because we are respecting everyone's opinion and and your truth is your truth. And it is so emotional for me to hear someone who, you know, because we've shared some of together in person, um, some of my story and, and to hear, like you said, those similarities of belonging and realizing the things that you needed to change and taking ownership and and doing whatever it took to get yourself on the right path. And it wasn't always easy, but you you didn't make any excuses, right? You just, you got it done because you knew literally your life depended on it. Absolutely. You know, and and now you're a champion for the underdog. Tell me, why are you a champion for the underdog? (laughs) Right. So I I realized the thing that I want to do is help other people understand how much value they have. And one of the reasons that I got into that is because I never realized it myself. Um, and human resources can be a very right. I typically see one of two extremes in HR. They are very for the business, very policy driven, which, you know, has its place. I agree. But, it's often at the expense of the well-being of the people or the candidates even, not even the current employees, right? Past employees, you know, potential employees. It's often at their expense. My goal was to make sure that people have that outlet, right? I mean, you spend a good chunk of your time in your workplace. That's just the reality. I was so blessed with my first company that I worked for, I I couldn't ask for any better. My goal was to make sure that other people had that opportunity. And one of the key things I've done is I've worked in a couple of different roles that I've been with, where I've worked specifically with incarcerated individuals, um, helping them to secure employment, um, partnering with, you know, transitional group homes, work release centers, partnering with them and saying, you know, hey, you've got a, you know, great workforce potential there. We'd love to tap into that. We'd love to give these folks a purpose, get them out of, you know, being confined to this facility, have them come, have them, you know, establish their independence while maintaining a routine, which is also very tremendously helpful. Um, And the other piece too is, you know, when, in, you know, my, outside of my current, you know, full-time work, I've also worked with actual facilities, right? Actual um, prisons and actual, you know, group transitional homes, staffing their folks, right? So making sure that we've got people in place, case managers, you know, substance abuse counselors, things of that nature, who want to see their people succeed. Um, that's really key too, right? I mean, it doesn't matter how much I want it. If, if they are surrounded by people who are setting them up to fail as well. That that doesn't make anything any easier. So, you know, this particular population, although I want to see that for everybody, I want to see everybody, you know, thrive in the role they're in. And whether it's with your current company, whether it's a different role in your current company, because oftentimes that's another mistake. And I'm sorry, I'm going on a tangent. Again. No, go but for it's it. So, something else that I really champion for is people labeling an individual as a poor performer, as a problem employee, because they're in the wrong role. Mm. So often I have seen that where I've got a stellar employee and they're just 
in an environment where they can't thrive, whether it's oftentimes they're bored, they're not being challenged, or they're in a role where they're not learning anything new, they're not contributing enough, they don't have enough of a voice on their team. A lot of times it's as simple as shifting them and saying, maybe you'll do better over here. Maybe this is something that'll you know, engage you a little more. And then it often fixes it. And you don't have a performance issue. You've got an alignment issue. And that's something that's much easier to fix. You know, it's funny. I, I And I've known of that practice. And I'm glad you brought that up. And, you know, I've actually noticed that in the Japanese management style. So when someone is not performing in a current role, um, I've done a lot of business in Asia where they will look to say where else can that individual perform because each person has skills, abilities, talents. They just might not be best suited in this environment or in this specific role, but you try to f- foster the growth of that individual if you believe that that individual can add value to the organization. So I think that's a phenomenal point. You know, you brought up a really good point as well around sort of the functions around HR, like policy procedure driven versus people success. You've got a lot of credentials behind your name now. Uh, you know, I can't even begin to start saying them because it's just, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, mess it up. But regardless of what you have, you have the same credentials as other of of your peers in the industry, but what do you think makes you different? So two things I think really helped me to thrive. Number one, and you actually touched on a little bit earlier, right, is empathy. Really having been kind of in the full spectrum of things, you know, I've worked in a lot of different roles, a lot of different industries, and I get that, you know, we have some people who say, oh, you need to check your emotions at the door. You need to be able to separate work from home. It's just not reality. It's not, that's not realistic. You can't hold people to that expectation. And just knowing that if you need to come talk to me about the frustrations you're having because, you know, your kid isn't sleeping through the night and I'm not getting enough sleep or it's, you know, uh, the neighbor's dog was barking, you know, and it's driving me nuts because I can't focus on, you know, doing my work, whatever the case is, come talk to me about because 90% of the time, People want to have their voice. They don't want me to necessarily provide a resolution. Sometimes they do. And and I, you know, work with them to, you know, on alternatives. But a lot of times people just want to have their say. They want to be able to come in and say, oh my God, this is going on, blah, 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 blah. And they feel better. And they, a lot of times, are going to go back in and be able to dive right in and, you know, be the all-star employee that I know they are already. That's a big key piece of two. The other thing I try, I strive really hard to do is to never let anybody not be 100% themselves. There's a little placard I have in my office and it it says, in fact, if I can reach it here. Sorry, one second. This, so this is my motto that I live by every day, and this sits right, <laughs> the first thing when you walk into my office, it sits right there. I want every single piece, color, hue of you to shine. And I don't ever want anyone to feel like they can't come in and be 100% themselves. You know, it, it doesn't matter because that's how we're going to alleviate anything that's going on is if I'm talking myself to yourself. Because I hid who I was and and I separated that for so long that I was never able to resolve anything. So if I expect to be able to provide guidance, support, whatever it is, I need you to come as you and I be me and we're going to find a way to fix it, whatever the case is. That's powerful. That is so powerful. Do you believe that because of your lived experience, it's given you the ability to have that empathy and compassion for others? So that's a big piece of it, right? And a lot of it is because I didn't have it for so long. I was very 
self-absorbed, right? And there's a difference between being selfish and self-absorbed. You know, the, the nature of my work, I couldn't really afford to be selfish, but I was very self-absorbed. I never saw how what I did, said, thought impacted anybody else. I thought my thoughts, this is it. They don't go beyond here. And it's not the case. People are impacted by who you are simply because you are who you are. You're there in that moment. They're there. They're impacted. No matter how minimal it is, no matter how positive, negative, whatever it is, there's always going to be an impact with every interaction you have. And just being cognizant of that helps you to kind of get a little bit more of where other people might be coming from, even though I'm never going to be able to fully understand, right? I, there, there's no way I can understand because no two people have exactly the same experience. But if I can gauge at least a little bit of where you're coming from, the emotional side of it, it's going to make a more impactful solution at the end of the day. That's amazing. And, and, and what is your work currently like, what are you working on currently within your human resources roles? Yeah, so I currently um, work in the medical transport space, um, but I work, kind of, I, so my title, I, I, this title I always laugh at, it's human resources generalist, right? What does that mean? Well, I wish I could tell you. It means we do a little bit of everything, right? So I work with, um, I, I work pretty heavily in the recruiting space. So I work with, a lot with bringing out talent, um, onboarding as well to making sure that people have a smooth transition in um, employee relations. I spend, I try to spend a lot of time actually talking to people and not about work. I, I'll go up to them and just chat to them about things because it keeps them engaged. Um, you know, obviously the world we're in now, employee engagement is, is a lot difficult. You know, and I'm very blessed that I, you know, come into an office. I'm one of those strange people. I, I hate working from home. I like to be in office because I like I like the interaction. I like to be able to see people and have conversations with them. I get it. Most people look like nuts too, but I love it. I, I couldn't imagine working from home on a long-term basis. It just does not sit well with me. But at the end of the day, still, it, I, my goal here is to just make sure that everybody knows I'm at your disposable, right? I'm human part of human resources that's what i'm here for <laughs> the human part of human resources i love that and you know what's funny i actually have had the opportunity to meet many people in the recruiting space over my time being in business and the ones that stick out the most for me are the ones that bring that human factor that make people feel like they're humans right and you know I always ask this question. I'm really interested in getting your answer. How do you think as a society we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect? So it's two big pieces that I think, you know, as a society, we really struggle with, right? The first one is honest communication. And part of it alludes back to what I indicated about myself, actually, is being completely, having a full understanding of who we are as an individual, until we grasp our authentic self, we can't present it accurately to other people. And on the flip side, until those folks understand their authentic self, they're not going to grasp who you are, even if you're putting 100% you out there. So really taking the time to engage with yourself self-awareness is key to that and the other piece is really acknowledging that some people aren't worth your time right your own well-being outweighs the need to placate others and if you can be okay with just saying I'm going to pass on this interaction. I'm going to pass on this connection. That's okay. It, it has no bearing on your likability. Has no bearing on your, you know, collaborative skills. Has no bearing on your ability to be a team player. None of that. 
none of that. It has to do with you understanding self-preservation and understanding that we're not all going to, you know, sing kumbaya in a big circle and, and, and see eye to eye and everything. That's what makes, you know, Saturday so great is, I mean, I, I use this as a stupid example, but it, it serves a purpose, right? I'm left-handed. I'm a, I'm a complete lefty. I cannot do and this is here for symmetry and decoration. I tell everybody, right? I can't wait them right-handed. And, and I think, you know, I could sit here and grumble about how people don't understand, you know, I move my mouse to the left side of my computer. And if, you know, someone from IT has to come in and work, it's like, ah. the reality is, am I going to let that phase me? Am I going to really sit here and say, oh, they just don't understand my point of view? No, I'm going to say, all right, well, if you don't, I mean, okay, great. It's not going to change at the core that I'm left-handed. And that's just the reality. Nothing you think, say, do, feel about that will change that fact. That is just a fact. So once we become okay with what's fact, people's mindsets can change. Who we are at the court doesn't. And just learning to say, I'm okay with me, whether you are or not. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's so insightful to our audience, to me. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that people have received a lot from today's episode. And I'm really confident that people are going to want to reach out to you. So where can people find you? Um, so I'm, I'm fairly most active on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me right on there. And I, you know, I'm happy to speak to anybody about anything they want to know, you know, I'm, I tell everybody most of the stuff that people think is, how could you discuss it? It's public record. I mean, you can find out most of this, you know, you can find out if you really want to know that, yes, I'm an ex-con, you can find my criminal record. If you want to find out that I'm a gay man, you can see that I'm married. I mean, I married another man. It's public record. All this stuff. So I, I don't have anything to hide. Um, I also work, I'm a certified professional resume writer and I work specifically with entry-level folks or folks who are transitioning or come from a background like mine where, you know, they've got some things that they think might be holding them back. I work with them. I don't charge to review and and guide you on paths because, you know, I know what it's like. I get that struggle. So feel free, you know, to reach out to me if you have a question about that. I'm happy to take a look and see what I can do for you as well. You're a good man. You are seriously a good man. Thank you so much for being here today. I was so, I feel blessed to to be here in your presence and to have connected with you on LinkedIn and, and uh, just really shared this conversation with you because it has meant so much to me. So there you have it, folks. The truth according to Matthew Higgins. Thank you for being on the show, my friend. It's a blessing to be around you as well. Likewise, everything you said back at you, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. Our show is sponsored by Discourse. We build belonging into the DNA of DEI. You can visit us on the web at discourseagency.com or check out our YouTube channel, Discourse Agency. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave a review, drop a comment, and most importantly, share it with a fellow human. Thank you so much for your support. And remember, your truth is your experience. Bye for now.